I see lots of friendly faces who have been part of our course this week, so welcome back to all of our uh, Regent students. And to anyone who's visiting tonight, welcome uh, to the North Carolina Study Center, if this is your first time. Uh, my name is Matt Hain, I'm on staff here at the Study Center, and um, very basically we're a center for Christian life and Christian thought at UNC. Um, so during law schools in session, this place is usually packed out with students, um, but we also love being a place that brings alumni and the community um, and faculty together, um, being a center for Christian thought within uh, the life of UNC. Um, so this, this week we've had the privilege of having Dr. Guthrie, George Guthrie with us, uh, all the way from Vancouver, long flight, long, long connecting flight I guess. Um, and we've been doing a course on the book of Hebrews. So uh, Dr. Guthrie's been teaching each morning from 9 to 12. But we wanted to organize something in the evening um, that would really accomplish two goals. One, uh, to share a little bit more about Regent College for those who are unfamiliar and some of the opportunities they have, especially in the summer, uh, for education. And then also for folks who, because of work or family or other reasons, couldn't be a part of the course this week but wanted to get a taste for like the Regent Summer School experience, uh, we've asked Dr. Guthrie to give a lecture tonight that's connected with our, um, our Hebrews topic for the week, but is also unique um, and a little bit broader in what we'll be talking about. Um, so, grateful to have you here. Uh, I'm going to hand over the phone now to, to George. So. Okay, George. Thank you. All right, thanks. It is uh, so good to see you guys tonight. I've had such a joy, just a ball this week with uh, those of you who have been in the Hebrews class. We've had uh, a good time interacting. You ask wonderful questions. And um, it's, it's just been a lot of fun to interact with you guys. But I'm so thankful that we've had this event tonight so that those of you who have not been able to be in the class could come and join us and just kind of get a taste of what we're trying to do here. Um, there is a tremendous consonance between what Regent College is all about and what you are trying to do here in the study center uh, in this part of the world. You see the, the mission of Regent on the screen that... Regent cultivates intelligent, vigorous, and joyful commitment to Jesus Christ, His church, and the world. And we're trying to do that by integrating a very high level of academics with deep Christian commitment in the context of Christian community. Uh, Regent was founded back in the 1960s um, somewhat along the lines of a British model where you have a university and then you have colleges that relate to that university. And so the vision was that uh, there would be a graduate school created that would foster uh, theological training for people across uh, various vocations <coughs> in life. Uh, the vision was not to be a normal seminary, if you will. Uh, at that time, most seminaries were just training people who were going into vocational ministry full-time. And from the very beginning, uh, with kind of the founding principal, James Houston, um, the idea was that we would be a place that would train people uh, who are coming out of uh, teaching, or law, medicine, um, just wide variety of vocations in the world, and they would be able to come there and get advanced theological training to go back into the world and be better equipped to advance the kingdom of God in the world. Um, and so Regent has been doing that now for decades. Uh, Brent Burgess is uh, one of our board members, so... It's good to see Brent uh, tonight. He could tell you even more about Regent than I can because he has a much longer history uh, with the school. But it's, a, it's an amazing place um, which continues that kind of vision of doing advanced, high-level academics, but helping people to think Christianly about how we engage the world. We have several of the students here 
who just came back from being involved in our summer program. And uh, these guys had a great time and just really, uh, I think, enjoyed the experience of being there and being in that, in that context. There's something unique about Regent because we're, we're trying to do all of this in the context of fostering Christian community. So just as an example, uh, every Tuesday we have chapel together and then we have soup. We, uh, we have what we call Soup Tuesday where the whole campus turns out, we, we make huge pots of soup and everybody kind of shares in homemade soup together on Tuesdays. Um, they're built around soup groups. My wife and I are involved in the gardening soup group. Uh, so we're kind of the faculty uh, leaders of the gardening group. We have a, have a community garden there on campus and um, we meet for soup every Tuesday and kind of plan what we're going to plant next and, and that kind of thing. So we have a, a great time. But the idea is that, that real uh, theological education happens best in the context of Christian community. When you're developing relationships with one another, uh, you're getting to know people, walking with people, doing life with people. And this was the thing that was really um, part of our vision uh, in coming to Regent. Pat and I moved to Regent a year ago this past May, and a big part of our sense of call was we felt like the Lord had shaped our lives in a way that we needed to be in a graduate context. We had been in an undergraduate context for a long time but that we needed to move to a graduate context where we were walking with the students and their families and interfacing with them on a consistent basis uh, so that we're not just having impact academically, which we want to do that. My uh, TA from this past year just got a full ride to Cambridge University to do New Testament studies under uh, Simon Gathercole. So we want to do very high-level academics, but we want to do it uh, in the cause of Christ. We want to be involved in Christian discipleship uh, in that academic context so that people are not just going out in the world smarter, but they're going out more deeply committed uh, to Christ and more able to advance His cause and His kingdom in the world. So um, we're just having a great time being there. It's been a, a rich experience for us already to, to be involved uh, one way that you can be involved, I want to encourage you to consider being involved, is through our summer classes that we have at Regent. I think um, it, it looks like it's a natural fit for us to come and do these kind of classes here from time to time, and I, I hope we have the opportunity to do that in the future because there is such a, uh, an obvious relationship between what you're trying to do here and what we're doing there. But I want to encourage you to consider taking a week and come out and experience uh, our summer programs. We have uh, world-class scholars, some of the best scholars in the world, come to us from around the world to uh, offer normally one-week classes there that are just amazing in terms of the topics. So uh, we've had courses this summer, like uh, Trimper Lohman talking about the... Uh, the Proverbs and, and uh, suffering and, and that kind of thing. Uh, Sarah Williams did a class on sexuality and the family. She's a historian from the UK. Uh, my wife took that class and she said it was amazing. Andy Crouch was there a couple of weeks ago doing technology in the family. And again, some of these guys were involved in that class and uh, Pat came home after the end of that class and her world had just been shaken. She said, I need to take the next week and just spend time processing 
the things that I've learned this week. Uh, so these are, these are life-changing kinds of opportunities to come and be involved with people who have thought very deeply about um, the various topics that they're teaching. So what we've tried to do this week with those of you who have been in the Hebrews class is give you a taste of that. Um, Hebrews has been one of the main areas that I've studied for all of my life. I'm as excited about Hebrews as I was 35 years ago when I started studying this book. Uh, and so for those of you who have been in the class, you know, you can kind of get involved in the joy of just the discovery of this book. And so think about being able to do that across a wide variety of topics that you're interested in. Areas like poetry, uh, different areas of theology, thinking about the integration of faith and science. Um, so what I would encourage you to do is to look at this spread of courses. Uh, we can give you information that will put you on to the courses that will be offered next year. Next year is actually our celebration of our 50th anniversary, the culmination of that. So we're going to have an amazing lineup of courses next year. And I would encourage you to come out and uh, take a week um, Vancouver is a pretty awesome place to uh, go on vacation anyway, so you can take a class in the mornings and then go out and explore, and I'll give you a list of some really good restaurants and <laughs> tell you the best trails to go hike and, and that kind of thing. And George, if I could add just one quick word uh, people might find is interesting. Um, many of you may know David Spence. Uh, David was one of the very early students at Regent in the early 70s, and one of the things he took away from Regent was he wanted to do a, a study center uh, back here. Mm -hmm. And so actually in the 70s, he did start a study center for Duke and Chapel Hill, kind of combined, but it sort of fizzled out. But he never lost that vision. And then, of course, uh, it's about six years ago now, he, he was very instrumental in launching the study center at Duke. And then a, a year or two later was, was the very instrumental in starting this study center. So there's actually a very interesting connection Absolutely. between region and this study center. Yeah. And let me just say that I think that what we do, what, what you're trying to do here and foster here, what we do at Regent, uh, and there are other academic institutions who are trying to do something similar, but, but we are, we're trying to address the discipling of people in terms of worldview, right? The way that we look at the world. We're trying to help people put the pieces together. To how, how do you think Christianly and live Christianly in a wide variety of situations that you find yourself in life? And uh, we're at a point in our cultural moment in the West where that is absolutely vital. I think what we will see more and more is kind of cultural veneers of Christianity are going to fall by the wayside under the weight of the changing worldview that we see taking place in the West. And so the future of the church will depend on a deep grounding in the scriptures, a deep grounding in the ability to think Christianly about who we are as the people of God and how we live in the world as the people of God going forward. Um, so I think the, the types of things that we're doing are not just kind of nice, these are nice things to be able to add to life. They're actually critical for the mission of the church. And so we would love to invite you to learn more about us as a college, to join us in the mission. Uh, if it's just praying for us, uh, that would be a wonderful thing. Actually, the greatest thing you can do is to pray for us 
that God would give us wisdom in carrying out the mission that He's given us to do. But we would love for you to be more involved in that and really uh, come and, and take advantage of the courses that are offered and that type of thing. Does anyone have a question for me uh, before we kind of transition and move to a topic that we're going to try to address for a few minutes tonight? Anybody have a question about Regent or something you would like to ask? Yes. Uh, I think I know this, but is Regent part of British Columbia University? Or is um, it was. It is affiliated. It's not a part of the institution. Is that an appropriate way of saying it? So we, we don't belong to UBC. We own our own land. We are our own institution. But we have an affiliation with the university. So kind of a, a relationship that's uh, somewhat of an informal relationship. It gives us rights as professors to the library and different things like that, but we're not owned by the university. Uh, interesting point about UBC is that uh, the, the new president of UBC, um, Santos Ono, is a, a believer, a devout Christian who came to Christ through student ministry at the University of British Columbia and has had a long trek through uh, administration has come back to UBC. He's actually spoken in our chapel, and he's a friend He's a friend of Regent College, which is great. We're very, very grateful for that. But if you drive onto the campus of UBC through the main entrance, Regent is one of the first buildings you see. It is. It is. It's very prominent. Um, one of the things that has, has struck... Um, me and, and Pat, my wife, about our transition there. Shared a little bit about this in the class this week. But we, uh, we are loving the context at Regent. It, it just fits who we are and what we're doing. The thing that has surprised us is um, the interface with people on the UBC campus, because we live on the UBC campus, uh, who have no connection with region and have no connection with Christianity, actually. Uh, we were expecting that we would come to Vancouver. We knew it was profoundly post-Christian, very secular, secular context, and we were anticipating that you would have kind of this sense of a wall there in you know, being open about your faith and building relationships with people. And we have found just the opposite, um, especially with immigrants, we have a whole group of Iranians who we're relating to. My wife was um, teaching English to a couple of the young women who were getting into the Ph.D. program in engineering. And through them, they've introduced us to a broader circle of their friends. Uh, we have several Chinese uh, couples that we're relating to. A young Canadian man who I have gotten to know through uh, the place where I work out. Um, they, these people have just opened up their lives to us and invited us into their lives and want to know about the gospel, want to know about Christianity. Three of them right now, the young Canadian guy and a Chinese couple, Pat and I are actually taking them through a Bible study overviewing the story of Scripture. And they don't know, they don't know anything. Uh, but we found a profound openness. It's such a post-Christian culture, you don't have to dig through the veneer of, of kind of cultural Christianity and it's, it's like people who have never heard because they never have heard. So uh, this young man, I think I've said this in the class, but this young man uh, who's in the class, the first assignment was to read Genesis 1 and, um, and I saw him a couple of days after they had read Genesis 1 as kind of an assignment for this class. And he... Uh, 
He said, man, he said, I read that first verse in Genesis 1, and I went, whoa! <laughs> I said, it's a very different way of looking at the world, isn't it? He said, yeah, it really is. Very different way of looking at the world. But we're, we're at the place where uh, we're interacting with people who've never heard the words Old Testament and New Testament before. And so pray for us as we are there because we, we have these opportunities. We've had many times this year where Pat and I have had friends like this over and they just spontaneously start asking us questions and just open the door for us to be honest with them about our faith and about Christianity. And we kind of shut the door when they leave and they just shake their and we, we look at each other and just kind of shake our heads because it's, it's just a, a very fresh kind of opportunity. So pray for us at, at Regent College. Um, Find out more about us. Partner with us as you can. And especially come see us. Because it's a pretty awesome place to be. Okay? Alright, I want us to transition into a topic that relates to what we've been doing with Hebrews uh, this week. But it is specifically on the use of the Old Testament in the New Testament. Matt's going to be sending around some very bare bones kind of handouts there. But we're going to take a look at this topic for a few minutes, just kind of get a, a brief taste, an overview of some things when we think about this uh, appropriation of the Old Testament text in the New Testament text. So let's let's kind of move into that and kind of talk through this, um, and I'll give you a, a word of introduction here to get us started. Uh, how many of you are familiar with the music of Andrew Peterson? You know Andrew Peterson's music? Andrew is a young guy, a musician in Nashville, Tennessee. He's the head of a, of a network of creatives who are called the Rabbit Room. And he writes uh, amazing music. You need to discover Andrew's music if you haven't seen it. He's actually going to be here in this area doing Behold the Lamb um, right before Christmas. And I would strongly encourage you to go see that because it's the history of redemption in musical form. It's, it's really beautiful. But he has a song uh, called Dark Before the Dawn. And the point of this song is that you know we, we live in a time that can be very discouraging, uh, which seems very dark. And you think about all the, the different uh, manifestations of evil in the world, this kind of thing. It can, it can feel overwhelming at points. And one of the stanzas of this song he says, so I'm waiting for the king. He comes galloping out of the clouds while the angel armies sing. He's going to gather his people in the shadow of his wings. And I'm going to raise my voice with the song of the redeemed. Because all this darkness is a small and passing thing. Now that last line is an, is an illusion. It's an echo of a place in literature. Does anybody recognize it? Does that ring a bell for anyone? It actually comes from Lord of the Rings. <laughs> There's a moment in Lord of the Rings where <laughs> Sam and Frodo are making their way across this burnt and barren land. And if you've, if you've read uh, the novels, you know that this is a moment late in the story when it just seems that hope is getting less and less and less. And Frodo has the ring around his neck and he can, he can barely walk. He can hardly go on. And the whole land is covered with this dark blanket of clouds uh, because the, uh, the evil Sauron has sent out this, this 
uh, cloud of darkness over the whole world. And so it's a very dark moment in the story. But all of a sudden, Sam sees the clouds part for just a minute, and he sees a star peeking through the clouds. And this is what he says at that moment in the novel. Tolkien writes, There peeping among the cloud rack above a dark tor high up in the mountains, Sam saw a white star twinkle for a while. The beauty of it smote his heart as he looked up out of the forsaken land, and hope returned to him. For like a shaft, clear and cold, the thought pierced him that in the end, the shadow was only a small and passing thing. There was light and high beauty forever beyond its reach. It's a powerful, <coughs> powerful passage. That when we live in this darkness of the world, we need to remember that there is light and high beauty <laughs> above the darkness. And that's what Andrew is tapping into by echoing this moment in this story and pulling it into his song. Now, when you think about literary allusions, you know, an author tapping into an earlier literary piece, whether it's a poem, a piece of Shakespeare, a novel, that kind of thing, it's, it can be a very powerful effect because the author is drawing on the power and beauty of the original context and kind of reappropriating it for the new context. So when we think about echoes of various kinds in literature or music and also in scripture, what is presupposed in that source text is true or beautiful or telling in some sense in that the truth needs to be communicated again, artfully crafted into the new context and amplified by the new context. Does that make sense? So the idea when an author is reaching back into a piece of literature or, or music or whatever and pulling in this, this reference, they're accessing the power and the beauty of that earlier reference and kind of remarshalling it in a fresh way because they feel like this truth needs to be communicated and amplified. But we have this with the scriptures as well. There are over 60,000 cross-references in the Bible. Over 60,000. A number of years ago, um, there were a couple of guys. One it was a computer scientist, actually, Dr. Fred, and the other was a pastor. And they got together and digitized this dynamic of cross-referencing that we have in the Scripture. And I want you to notice the, the beauty of this, the symmetry of it, how there's a cohesiveness to the whole tying together of the scriptural story. Here we have a body of literature that was written over about 1,500 years. Uh, it's a body of literature that was done by 40 different authors, numerous different cultures, and yet you have this beautiful cohesion as the whole story works and ties together. And what it's doing is it's actually stitching together a grand story of Scripture, uh, which we would refer to as, as the story of redemption. The whole story is kind of working toward uh, a, a climax um, at the end of the story. 
So these cross-references play a very, very important role. What we're going to see tonight as we look at different types of appropriation of the scriptural text is the authors often are reaching back and they're tapping earlier parts of the story and pulling them in for various reasons to say what is going on now at this point in the story relates directly to what God was doing back then. And so you, you have the different parts of the story tying together because God acts consistently through history. He, he tracks with uh, different themes and things that He's accomplishing in the world. And at the center of that story is Christ Himself. So Christ is at the center of that story. If I go back to the cross-references, notice that you have uh, places like this little area here where you have a, a gathering of a lot of these cross-references. And you might be able to guess that that is really the place where we find the Gospels. Because in the life and the ministry, the work of Jesus, the Gospel writers are keen not just to tell the story of Jesus, but to also uh, show how the story of Jesus is a fulfillment of so much that we have in the Old Testament story. So you have these things come together and culminate in the person and the work of Christ. So the Gospels are going to be one place where we have this rich mix of <coughs> references. Now, with the book of Hebrews itself that we've been looking at this week, there are about 35 quotations in the book of Hebrews. Another 34 or so overt allusions and just numerous general references to people and places and events and institutions. So it is chock full of the Old Testament, and we've seen that already this week. All right, Jesus himself actually um, said that this was the case. So you have a passage like Luke 24, 25 to 27, where he, he says, after his resurrection... He said to them, You foolish people, how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Wasn't it necessary for Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them the things written about himself in all the scriptures. Now that's a striking claim. A striking statement. And as I mentioned in the class earlier today, I think, um, what I think Jesus was doing in that time after his resurrection, prior to his ascension, one of the things he was doing is he was teaching a hermeneutics class to his disciples. He was walking them through various parts of the scripture and showing how the scripture was fulfilled in his life, his ministry, his death, his resurrection. And so they are now starting to learn to read scripture in light of the Christ event. Uh, it's true to the historical grounding to what those scriptures are doing in their original context. It's not just kind of departing from the original intentions of those authors, but it is filling those passages full of meaning as they are filled, fulfilled in the Christ event itself. And so you have uh, people like Paul who is going to uh, at times bring to bear uh, interpretation of these scriptures and uh, show how they are um, a fulfillment, or they are fulfilled in the person of Christ Himself. 
Martin Luther actually said it this way. He was talking to people who said, we really don't need to worry about the Old Testament as Christians. And this is what Martin Luther said. He said, there are some who have little regard for the Old Testament. They think of it as a book that was given to the Jewish people only and is now out of date, containing only stories of past times. But Christ says in John 5, Search the Scriptures, for it is they that bear witness to me. The Scriptures of the Old Testament are not to be despised, but diligently read. Therefore, dismiss your own opinions and feelings, and think of the Scriptures as the loftiest and noblest of holy things, as the richest of minds which can never be sufficiently explored, in order that you may find that divine wisdom which God here lays before you in such simple guise as to quench all pride. Here you will find the swaddling clothes and the manger in which Christ lies. Isn't that a beautiful idea that the Old Testament scriptures are actually like swaddling clothes and manger in which Christ lies. Simple and lowly are these swaddling clothes, but dear is the treasure, Christ, who lies in them. So let's walk through a few examples of how the Old Testament is used by the writers of the New Testament. And let me kind of give you a few words of introduction here. First of all, we're going to look at quotations, allusions, and echoes as three of the main things we want to consider. When we talk about a quotation, normally quotations in the New Testament are introduced by a citation formula of some type, uh, often with an extended chain of words or phrases quoted verbatim. So quotation is going to be a longer uh, piece of literature that is brought over into the New Testament. And as I'll point out in just a minute, there are specific kinds of formula that people use to introduce those quotations. An allusion is where you have several words are embedded uh, in the text of the New Testament from the Old Testament, uh, and they point overtly to a particular place in Scripture. So you can tell where that text is coming from but it's not a full quotation. It's normally just a phrase or two or three words, um, and that, that would be an illusion. Uh, Richard Hayes, who is actually you know, taught at Duke University, uh, prominent New Testament scholar uh, in this area, has done a lot of work on echoes in the New Testament. Uh, he originally did a book on Paul called Echoes in Paul, and more recently has done a book on echoes in the Gospels. And Richard has really kind of pioneered this area where we're picking up on echoes, which would be the inclusion of a word or a phrase that is very faint. It's, it's kind of what you might think of as a faint illusion. Um, but the, for the alert reader, Richard points out, this evokes an earlier text. And what I want to do is start with quotations and move to illusions, which you all would be familiar with, but then, then really kind of get on to talking about some of the echoes that we find, for instance, in the Gospels that really kind of bring passages alive. And that's kind of where we're going to move to tonight. The final thing would be themes and general references. So um, we're going to talk about the fact that the Gospel of John, for instance, is very big on presenting how Jesus and his life and ministry fulfilled these Old Testament institutions like the festivals, the temple, uh, sacrificial system, those kind of general themes where you don't always have a quote or even an allusion to a direct place in Scripture, but it's clear that what Jesus is alluding to is the fulfillment of some major institution in Judaism. Okay, 
So we'll talk a little bit about that as we go on as well. So a few words of, of just kind of basic introduction on uh, the quotations in the New Testament. There are roughly 250 overt quotations in the New Testament, about 250. Uh, and you have uh, over a thousand references if you include allusions. So think about that. 27 books of the New Testament, you have over a, a thousand cross-references that are overt, either quotations or allusions, to the Old Testament text. Secondly, quotations often are fronted by introductory formulas, as I said a few minutes ago, such as the Scripture says... Um, Matthew will often use a fulfillment formula, he says, which fulfills what the prophet said, so-and-so. Uh, the book of Hebrews speaks of Scripture as falling from the lips of God, as God says. Uh, Paul himself often uses an introductory formula, it is written. Just the, the, the fact that the Scripture is something that has been established and written, and his assumption is that God was the initiator of that writing in some way. Right, so we have various kinds of introductory formulae. And then some quotations are taken from the Targums. The Targums were um, Aramaic paraphrases of the scriptures. Um, and some are taken from Hebrew. But the vast majority of the quotations of the Old Testament and the New Testament are Greek. So it, that would make sense. We're in a Greek culture. People are Greek-speaking for the most part, they're writing to people who are Greek readers. And therefore, for them, the Greek Old Testament is really their NIV of the day, if you will. Okay, So uh, the Greek text is what they're going to use, for the most part, as they are quoting the text of Scripture. Alright, so let's uh, talk a little bit about the various functions that we have when we think about quotations of the Old Testament in the New. Again, with quotations, we're thinking about extended uh, chains of words or phrases that are brought over. Uh, let's just talk about this uh, example that we have right at the beginning of the Gospel of Mark. Mark begins with the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Look, I am sending my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way the voice of one shouting in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make his path straight. Now what we actually have here is a conflation of a couple of different Old Testament texts. He mentions Isaiah because Isaiah is the dominant text that he's interested in here. It's kind of, if you will, the lead text or the control text that he's dealing with. And we're going to see in just a little bit that there are a whole lot of other allusions in what follows from Isaiah. Uh, so he's, he's interested in kind of centering it there in his quotation, um, but he's also kind of riffing a little bit on Exodus 23.20 or maybe Malachi 3.1. The wording is not exactly uh, the same, but this idea of sending the messenger ahead um, is from those texts. Prepare the way for the Lord, make his paths straight. I want you to think about this, this use of this Old Testament text and think about the imagery that is being evoked here. All right? uh, it's actually taken, this part of the text is actually taken from Isaiah 40 and uh, it is in this block of text that is at a very significant place 
in a turning in the book of Isaiah. Because uh, what has happened up to this point is you have a, a whole lot about God's judgment on the nation of Israel. And this is the turning point in the book where God is now introducing a whole section that moves into renewal of the people of God. The renewal that will culminate in the renewal of the heavens and the earth. Uh, one of the things that's happened in New Testament studies in recent years is more and more and more we're seeing how Isaiah, specifically this section of Isaiah from 40 all the way to the end of the book, really lays kind of a subfloor, if you will, for the New Testament literature. There's an awful lot being drawn on from these chapters uh, in the New Testament. Um, the imagery that is used here of making straight in the desert a highway for our God is imagery that comes from uh, the ancient world. When a king would come to your town, what you would do is you would go out and you would level out the road to make sure that the road was smooth and flat as the king came into your town. Uh, you didn't want the king coming in in his chariot or traveling in and being hitting potholes and that kind of thing and being in a bad mood when he got to your town. So you would go out and you would smooth down the, the speed bumps, if you will, and you would fill in the potholes so that the road was smooth for the king coming to town. But notice that in this passage, the dynamic is cosmic. It's not just a normal road. This is a cosmic side road. It is the mountains that are going to be leveled. It's the valleys that are going to be filled in in order to smooth the way for the king of the universe to come to town. Do you, do you get that imagery? Do you understand what I'm saying? So this beginning of this hopeful passage about God bringing bring renewal to his people, the idea is that God is coming to town. And you need to get ready for that, that coming. So God is the one who is who's going to come on this cosmic-sized road. And he is the one who is going to uh, reveal his glory in this context in a new way. Now folks, think about this. Clearly, in this original context in Isaiah, who is it who's coming to town? That's a question. <laughs> Who is it who's coming to town? Well, look at what, what is the text in Isaiah saying? What's it emphasizing? It is the Lord God himself who is coming to town, right? Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. And it is profoundly significant that what Mark does is he accesses this text and applies it to Jesus. In times past, uh, it was common in broader secular New Testament studies to say that, well, you know, Mark is not really that interested in the deity of Christ. <laughs> that was something that developed later on. But right here at the very beginning of the book, you have the appropriation of an Old Testament text that clearly in its context is speaking about God coming to town. And Mark is accessing it to speak as if it is fulfilled in Jesus himself. He is the Lord who is coming to town. Okay, We're going to see that a little bit more when we see some of the echoes a little bit later on from Mark's Gospel as well. And we'll take a look at that and talk about it. Um, sometimes what quotations do is they mark an analogy. They're not always given in terms of fulfillment of prophecy. 
Um, sometimes they are marking an analogy. You have this very famous one from uh, Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. This is the story of the baby Jesus when he, he and his family are going down to Egypt. When they had gone and an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, get up, he said, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Now the thing that strikes us is kind of odd about that is we go back and we look at this passage in Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. And it's clear that what Hosea is talking about is he's talking about Israel as his son, right? His, his child who he brought out of Egypt. And we think, what is Matthew doing there when he's applying this to Jesus? Look at the original context of the Hosea passage. When Israel was a child, I loved him. Out of Egypt, I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by the arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love. And I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws. And I bent down to them and fed them. So the context is God wooing the nation of Israel. And he makes this statement that out of Israel I called my son as an expression of love. Now, the way this is being appropriated, I think, in Matthew is not as if this was a prophecy that then is fulfilled in Jesus. What he's actually doing is something that is common among the New Testament writers at points. He's drawing connections in history to parallels in what's going on, to uh, an, these analogies of history that draw connections between what God was doing in the past among the people of Israel and what God now is doing in a fresh way in the life and the ministry of Jesus. You have many cases of this where the point is not this is fulfilling prophecy in the sense of prediction and fulfillment. It's that now something is happening in Jesus that is fulfilling uh, intention and relationship that you have in the earlier text in a fresh way. And so with Jesus going down into Egypt and coming out of Egypt, Matthew's saying, look, there's a pattern here. Because Egypt is very significant for, for the people of Israel. Jesus came to accomplish and be what Israel failed to be as the people of God to kind of fill that full. You see this when Matthew goes on, for instance, to the temptation accounts. Because each of the points at which Jesus was tempted, Israel was tempted in the wilderness, and yet Jesus passed the test and did not give in to the temptation and made the right choice where Israel didn't make the right choice in the wilderness. So you have these parallels that are analogous in history because one of, the, one of the key ideas is that God acts consistently in history. He keeps bringing certain things around as he's moving things forward in his plan and in his history of redemption. Okay? I'll give you a chance to ask some questions about that a little bit later. So jot down a question if you want to do that as you go. The other thing that we have that's very common in use of quotations is what is referred to as midrash. 
Midrash we talked about today in the Hebrews class a little bit. It's just commentary. It's where an author would do commentary. So you have this quotation of Psalm 95 in Hebrews chapter 3, uh, verses 7 and following. Um, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers tested me, tried me, and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their hearts, and they have not known my way. So I swore in my anger, they will not enter my rest. So the author of Hebrews quotes this passage and then immediately comments on it, And notice how he weaves the elements of the quotation through his exhortation that he gives to the believers he's addressing. Watch out, brothers, so that there won't be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. There's that idea of the heart from the passage that departs from the living God. But encourage each other daily while it's still called today, so that none of you is hardened by sin's deception, For we have become companions of the Messiah if we hold firmly until the end. The reality that we had at the start, as it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. So see, he's weaving now the passage of the Old Testament into direct exhortation of the people he's addressing. So that's another way that the text is appropriated. I'm going to kind of skip on to allusions here just for the sake of our time. Now, when we talk about allusions, again, normally this is just several words that are kind of accessed to refer to something in the Old Testament text. Uh, you think about this taking place in history, for instance, uh, the picture I have in, on the screen here is actually uh, from 1940, uh, Dunkirk, France. You're very familiar with the, the whole dynamic that happened there with D-Day when the British Expeditionary Force... Uh, was sent over to stem the tide of the Nazis moving through Europe, and they actually got trapped at that moment. And uh, it's a phenomenal story where um, Hitler's army actually stalls for about three days, if you've read that history or seen, seen the movies on that history. Um, and as those clouds are, are covering the land, and you have this critical moment where several hundred thousand of the Allied troops are trapped in that moment. Um, What's not often known or emphasized is that you have uh, a little three-word message that was sent uh, back to Britain from these these forces. And there was just this three-word coded message that was sent back over to England and was actually broadcast broadly in England. And those three words were, and if not... And if not. And what that was an allusion to that people uh, at that time in the UK recognized because they were very saturated in scripture was that moment in the story of Daniel with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego where they are faced with bowing down to the king and they say, we believe that our God will deliver us and if not, we still will not bow. We will endure in doing what is right. And this is part of what marshaled those who then responded by sending um, all the boats over in this great um, rescue mission where nearly 350,000 troops were saved. But it's interesting that at that time, this brief illusion 
signaled something, it triggered something in people's imaginations because they knew the broader story. And it, it was meaningful to them because they knew that broader story. So uh, you think about this, this moment in history, it turned in part on an illusion. At least that was, was a significant piece of what went on at that time. Now, you have various kinds of allusions uh, in the New Testament literature. So you have, for instance, this one in Matthew 2.20. Go to the land of Israel for those who were seeking the child's life are dead. If I showed you this in the Greek text, Greek Old Testament and the Greek New Testament, you would see that the words are exact through much of what I have in bold there on the screen. What Matthew is doing is he's evoking an allusion to Exodus 4.19. The Lord said to Moses in Midian, Go back to Egypt because all the men who were seeking your life are dead. But that may not seem that significant to us until we realize that in Judaism of the first century, uh, second temple period, uh, there was a key idea that Messiah would come and be a new Moses. The Messiah would be one who fulfilled a lot of what Moses did in the type of ministry that Moses did. You might think about a passage like John 6 where Jesus talks about the bread coming down from heaven. That whole passage is built around this idea that the Messiah would be the new Moses and do miracles like Moses did, and people were anticipating that. You have this based on Deuteronomy 18, 18, and 19, where God says to Moses, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their fellow Israelites, and I will put my words in his mouth. He will tell them everything I commanded him. I myself will call to account anyone who does not listen to my words that the prophet speaks in my name. So what Matthew is doing in this very basic allusion is he's drawing connections. He's saying if you really know the story of Moses, then I'm going to weave some words into the story of Jesus that help you to draw those very significant historical connections between Moses and Jesus. Okay? Right, so allusions. I mentioned earlier that we have allusions to Isaiah in this passage in Mark 1. And I've included this under allusions rather than echoes because there are just so many of them. There are actually a whole bunch more than what I have on the screen, but I didn't want to overwhelm you with, uh, with you know, too many uh, references. But I want you just to zero in on these terms that you have here in Mark chapter 1. Gospel of Jesus Christ. In the wilderness. A baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The reference to Jerusalem. Uh, the fact of proclamation, the fact that one is power, who is powerful is coming. And then when we shift to the passage there at the beginning of Isaiah, in the first ten verses or so, you have all of these different things show up as really echoes or, or allusions that tie all of Mark 1 back to uh, the Isaiahic text. In fact, elements like, where this really starts helping, is even elements like uh, you get down to the end of this passage in Mark. You remember where it says that Jesus was out in the wilderness and the, and the animals, the angels were with him and the animals were there? 
And, and you may have always thought, I know I always thought, well, what, what's the deal with the animals being in the wilderness with Jesus? What's significant about that? Well, it's actually an echo of a passage that mirrors part of this passage in Isaiah 40. It's a little bit later in Isaiah uh, 43, if I'm remembering correctly. But it talks about this renewal that God will bring to the wilderness, and He's going to bring a renewal that will involve the animals in the wilderness. So you have these echoes that are tying these passages of Scripture together, saying that what's going on in the ministry and the life of Jesus is huge because it's what God has been building and putting together uh, from early on, and he, they tie back uh, Jesus' ministry to these Older Testament texts. Now, part of the dynamic that we just saw with this passage, I want to illustrate with this picture of my grandfather. Uh, this painting was actually done by my aunt. Uh, at one time, my granddad in Dyersburg, Tennessee, had 150 rose bushes in his backyard. And he was a hardworking man. Um, the greatest compliment I've ever been paid was when my granddad, one day when he and his brother Jimmy, he was probably about 80 years old at that time, and his brother Jimmy was a bit younger than him, and the three of us were working together in the yard. Of course, I was the hired labor. It was like being in a ship with two captains. <laughs> one of them would tell me to do something, and the other one said, No, George, you don't want to do it that way. Go over here. Do, you know, that kind of but um, he, he turned to Jimmy and he said, uh, George works like we do. And that was like the greatest compliment I could have been paid. So I love this picture because it captures my granddad working out in the heat of the summer, working on his roses. When you see this picture, you know, I could spend some time getting you to write down the things that you notice about this picture. And you may talk about the roses, the trees in the background, how he's dressed, that kind of thing. But you know what comes to my mind? I'm not just seeing this little slice of the backyard I can turn and I can see the pines along the side. I can see the room that my granddad and I built onto his house. I can see the tree on the other side of the house that's not there anymore that had the bag swing on it that we swung on. So what this slice does for me is it pulls in a much larger context. I see this slice and it, it evokes for me, it reminds me of a much larger context which which... Uh, with which I'm very familiar. Does that make sense? So what the authors of the New Testament do at times is they will evoke a context by giving you a quote or an allusion, but then what happens is they're, they're intending you to think about the broader context of that passage. They're pulling in the whole thing. And the assumption is that you are saturated enough in Scripture that you're starting to pick up on that kind of thing. Now, that brings us to the topic of echoes, and I kind of want to move through. I'm going to culminate the time with this just because of our, our time tonight. I'm going to kind of conclude um, with this bit. Um, but let me talk to you about these echoes because I think you'll find this um, really interesting and encouraging. So we, we talked about the echo earlier from Andrew Peterson's song, picking up on this echo in Lord of the Rings. But think, look at these passages, and let's kind of hear the echoes in these passages. So you have a passage like Matthew 2, 9 through 11. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea in the time of King Herod, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is the one who is born King of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. 
And after they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and they worshipped him. And then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. This is actually echoing Isaiah chapter 59. Look at this passage from Isaiah 59, and then we'll just briefly talk about the significance of it. In the West, people respect the Lord's reputation. Again, this is from Isaiah. In the East, they recognize his splendor. Wise men from the East. Shine, shine, O Jerusalem, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. Think about the rising of the star that they pointed to. Look, darkness and gloom shall cover the earth upon the nations, but the Lord will appear upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. Kings shall walk in your light, and nations by your brightness. Lift up your eyes round about, and see your children gathered together. Look, all your sons have come from far away, and your daughters shall be carried on shoulders. All those from Saba shall come, bringing gold, and they shall bring frankincense and announce the good news. In Greek, it's the gospel. Announce the good news of the salvation of the Lord. So you have this passage that the wise men coming is seen as a fulfillment of this grand idea that part of what would happen in the Messianic age is that the Gentiles would be coming back uh, to Jerusalem. They would be coming back seeking the Lord and looking for the glory of the Lord. And you have this kind of evoked and the Isaiahic promises in that regard are kind of pulled in by way of the narrative of the wise men himself. Let's look at a couple of other uh, examples. Uh, we talked about this text just really briefly today. Who calms the storm? I love this passage. But he was in the stern sleeping on a cushion and they woke him up and said to him, Teacher, don't you care that we are about to die? So he got up and he rebuked the wind, and said to the sea, be quiet, calm down. And as I told the class today, that in the Greek text, it's basically saying, shut up! <laughs> Everything just calms down. Then the wind stopped, and it was dead calm, and he said to them, why are you cowardly? Do you still not have faith? They were overwhelmed by fear. They were terrified. And said to one another, who then is this? Even the wind and the sea obey him. And Mark, a lot of times what will happen is you'll have these questions. Who then is this? Who is this? And it's almost as if Mark goes, ding, 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 ding. It's the right question. Because what this actually is, it's an echo of um, a passage that we have in Psalm 107, 24 and following. They witnessed the acts of the Lord. Let's look at the, the, the parallels here with the Mark passage. They witnessed the acts of the Lord, His amazing feats on the deep water. They reached up to the sky and then dropped down into the depths. The sailors' strength left them because the danger was so great, and they swayed and staggered like a drunk, and all their skill proved ineffective. They cried out to the Lord in their distress, and He delivered them from their troubles. He calmed the storm. And the waves grew silent. And the parallel in the language is, is exact at points between those two texts. 
So who is the one who can calm the storm? It is the Lord God who can calm the storm. Who walks on the sea? Immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go ahead to the other side to Bethsaida. And while he dispersed the crowd, after saying goodbye to them, he went to the mountain to pray. And when the evening came, the boat was in the middle of the sea and he was alone on the land. And he saw them straining at the oars because the wind was against them. As the night was ending, he came to them walking on the sea for he wanted to pass them by. An odd statement. Have you ever thought about that? That's just what, What's that about? That he wanted to pass them by. When they saw him walking on the water, they thought he was a ghost. And they cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them, Have courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. And then he went up with them into the boat, and the wind ceased. And they were completely astonished, because they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. A big part of what Mark is doing is Mark walks us through the gospel. The disciples are kind of the disciples in the gospel. <laughs> <laughs> They're kind of like, don't you get it, guys? I mean, come on. Uh, but what Mark is doing is, is he's having us walk with the disciples in the discovery of who Jesus is. Right. So what, what is this echoing? Well, this passage of walking on the sea, who is it that walks on the sea? Job tells us. Job 9, 8-11. God alone spreads out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. He makes the bear, Orion, and Pleiades, and the constellations of the southern sky. He does great and unsearchable things and wonderful things without number. If he passes me by, I cannot see him. If he goes by, I cannot perceive him. I think the whole element of, of the passing by in Mark is specifically triggering thought to say, okay, this is the identity of Jesus. Think about this passage from, from Job's text. And then one final uh, echo passage. Why the poor fig tree? You know the passage where Jesus curses the fig tree? It's the only miracle Jesus does that is a destructive and formal miracle. Right? And all the gardeners uh, in the room weep, you know. <laughs> but you know this story. They go out uh, to Bethany. Jesus is hungry. He sees a fig tree in the distance with leaves. And he went to find out if there was anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. Now, historically, what happened with, with figs in Jerusalem and this area is they would put on initial buds that would herald the coming crop. And those buds could actually be eaten. They weren't the right, the good thing to eat, but they could dry them and do different things with them. But that's not the point of the story. Jesus finds that there's nothing on it. He curses the fig tree. And then you have the story move to uh, the cleansing of the temple in Jerusalem. Uh, after Jesus cleanses the temple and pronounces this statement that my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you've made it a den of thieves, you have this, this statement of judgment against the temple, and then you move back to the conclusion of the fig tree story. 
where they go back, they see the tree again early in the morning, and as they're passing by, it is withered from the roots up. So you have a withered tree. Peter remembers and says, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you curse has withered. Now, this literarily, this is called intercalation, where you start one story, you interrupt that story with another related story, and then you go back to the original story. It's kind of a sandwich-type structure called intercalation. All right? So you, you have this taking place, but the point is the centerpiece of the, of the whole thing. So the cursing of the fig tree, scholars are pretty unified on the, on the fact that this is a, an act of judgment. It's a dramatic act that is showing that there is judgment coming against the temple. temple. It's actually foreshadowing what would happen in A.D. 70 as a part of what's going on here. All right? But what scholars haven't often picked up on, uh, one of my students and I are writing about this, we're actually going to present a paper on this at a professional meeting in the fall, is that in this broader context, whoops, let's go back, sorry. In this broader context of Isaiah 56, uh, when you get on further down, you have the actual quote that my house will be called the house of, of prayer for all people. But the passage, the whole passage, is about the fact that those who are outsiders to the temple are going, in the new age, they're going to be the insiders. So the, the alien, the Gentiles, the stranger, who can't go into the inner parts of the temple, they're going to be insiders in the temple. The eunuch, who can't participate in the inner circle of worship of God because they're a eunuch in the temple. This text says the eunuch is going to be an insider in the temple. Look at the beautiful language, and then I'll just tell you what I think is the implication of it. No foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord should say, the Lord will exclude me from his people. And the eunuch should not say, look, I am a dried up tree. It's exactly, it's, it's the same terminology dried up tree. For the Lord says this, for the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath and choose what pleases me and hold firmly to my covenant, I will give them in my house and within my walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give each of them an everlasting name that will never be cut off. They will be insiders in my house. Do you get that? As for the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to Him, to love the name of the Lord and to become His servants, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it and hold firmly to my covenant, I will bring them to my holy mountain and let them rejoice in my house of prayer. So what I think is going on with Jesus' cursing of the fig tree is judgment. It is judgment against the temple. But there's a flip side to that point of judgment. And that is that those who traditionally have been outsiders, not worthy to come into the very presence of God, are now going to be the insiders. In other words, it's the temple establishment in Jesus' day who are going to be the withered tree. The eunuchs and the foreigners who really come to covenant with the Lord are going to be right inside God's house. In fact, we know as this develops, what happens is we are the house. We are the temple. 
we are able to come right into the very presence of God because of the new covenant in Christ that all of this is setting in motion. So what that text is about is this great thing that God is doing in the world where God is renewing the heavens and the earth as we've talked about in our class that this is grounded in what God did in the people of Israel. It is going to be carried forth though in the blessing of all the nations in the gospel, in the new covenant as God brings people to himself and not only brings them to the temple but actually transforms them into the temple. And that's, gonna, that's a very exciting part of the fulfillment of all this in the New Testament story. Okay, I think for the sake of our time, we've, uh, you've been very patient tonight. And I think what we're going to do is take just a minute. Do we have a minute? Matt? This is so we're at 8 o'clock. I know sometimes have to run. So we're going to take literally a 60-second rest break, talk to a neighbor. If you have to run, please feel free. Yes. And for anyone uh, who is able to stay, we'll have maybe 15 or 20 minutes for Q&A. Okay. Um, so, so feel free to you know, slip off if you have to. Otherwise, stretch, talk to a neighbor, and then we'll come back together. Okay. Thank you very much for, for being here tonight. Thank you. So, feel free to stretch. <laughs>
I promise 60 seconds, so we're going to do our best to stick to that. So glad, glad for everyone who could stick around. George, I think maybe 15 or 20 minutes. Yeah, at the most. I, I know you folks are needing, especially those of you who are in class, in class in the morning, so we want to be sensitive to that. But we'll take a few minutes to kind of talk through some things that you want to probe a bit about this. Again, this is just kind of a taste, basic introduction to just some bits here. But what, what does this raise for you in terms of questions? What would you like to ask? Um, what, can we, what can we deal with, Matt? I promise I'm not a plant. This is a real question. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so one thing I've always wondered about the illusions and echoes is how, how broad do you know, how broad is the context of the illusion? Like how much of the Old Testament yeah. section from where the passage is from? Is it a, like is it a verse? Is it you know, several? Yeah, I don't think there's anything that is set uh, in stone about that. Um, I think you know something that's hard for us to grasp is how saturated people often were in the scriptures because they're list, listening to them liturgically and ryth- rhythmically, and as young children they're reading them a lot, memorizing large portions and that kind of thing. Um, so one of the methodologies that I teach my advanced New Testament students. Uh, is to go back and take a, when you have a quotation in the New Testament, to not just go back and look at that quotation in context, go back and look at the quotation, but look at the broader context. Read in the Greek or Hebrew, if you have the ability to do that, a chapter before and a chapter after, and see what starts coming up. Um, because that's where a lot of these things begin to pop up and, and you start making these, these connections. Uh, the, the last one that I shared on the fig tree actually came out of a seminar I taught at Regent last fall uh, where I discovered this myself, was thinking about it in my own study for the class and then I kind of led my students to discover it by giving them an assignment, teaching them how to do it. And so uh, one of my students, Stephen Stenton, and I are going to present at uh, the Society of Oak Literature meeting in November on this passage. So and there's nothing set in stone. Uh, you know, authors had discretion for how much they're pulling in. But especially with Isaiah, I'll give you another example. Uh, Philippians 2, you know, the Christ hymn in Philippians 2. Um, you know what I'm talking about there in 2, 5 through 11. Uh, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although exist in the form of God, that whole, that whole thing. There are a couple of dozen echoes of Isaiah 52 and 53 that make up that whole, what we call a hymn. It's, it's just chock full of language that's right out of Isaiah 52-53. And so that, that idea of, of emptying oneself, think about the Isaiahic text that says he poured himself out for others. It's, it's just rich. So that is more of a focused kind of chapter and a half uh, but sometimes, especially with the Asianic text, I, it, it ranges a bit more broadly. That's a great question. Yeah. So, in addition to all of the the illusions that you're talking about, there's also, you know, the the way that Jesus acts, right? He feeds Israel in the desert. He Absolutely. makes men out of mud. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and yet, there's sort of a modern criticism that, that the Bible is just not direct enough about who Jesus is. Right? Yeah. But is that is that that we as an enlightenment culture are looking for kind of explicit statements? Do you think that the authors felt that they were being very direct with, which is was very overt, and that we have a, a 
problem seeing that because of being from a different culture than there? I, I certainly think that, that the roots of the challenge are cultural. So, give you an example of that. Um, for the Hebrews class this week, the students read uh, the, the article by Richard Bauckham. Um, and Bauckham points out that, that what is going on uh, in the New Testament with these, these Jews who were monotheists is they're thinking about Jesus uh, in terms of his identity as God rather than nature, which is what would develop with the church fathers. And, and you know, we normally, as, it, as Christianity moved into the Greek world, you had this dialogue going on in terms of ontology, the being, the existence of God, and what was the nature of God like, and how does Jesus relate to that. And Bauckham and others would say that's entirely appropriate given the cultural context. And it's not that that is wrong, it's just not the way a first century Jew would talk and think about things. Uh, they would think of identity, things that someone did and embodied actions that they did as revealing their identity. And so when you have uh, statements in the New Testament about Jesus being the one who created the world, only God creates the world in Second Temple Judaism. Uh, Jesus sitting on the throne at the right hand of God, only God sits on his throne. No one else in Second Temple Judaism sits on the throne of God. And so you have these different kinds of actions. When Jesus comes and you know, begins to do the various miracles to forgive sins, you, know, you remember when he, he heals the guy who is uh, crippled, let down through the ceiling, and he forgives the guy. He, he says, so that you can know that this is really God working here. You know, get up and walk, that kind of thing. The scandal is not the healing. The scandal is that he said that he was forgiving the guy's sins. And so the religious leaders say, who, who but God can forgive sins? And Mark, again, ding, 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 ding. That's the right question. You know, but it's, it's him doing things that identify him with the Father. You know, his statements like I and the Father one. So, yes, what the Gospels, what we as Westerners want the, the, the New Testament to do is just stay, okay, this means Jesus is God. And that's just not the way that a new, te- a, a early Jewish person would talk about it. But it's also it wouldn't be wise in that cultural context when you're trying to spread the gospel to others who either are Jewish or pagan. Uh, sometimes you want them to kind of go through the process of discovery, right? And you discover by what someone does, you, you have an unfolding of their identity. But it very much is a cultural, it's a very different cultural way of, of processing things, I think. That's, that's a great question. Yes, ma'am. Um, when Jesus was walking uh, by the boat, his response was, it is I. Was the Hebrew be Yahweh in that case? Saying it is God, Yahweh, I. When he was walking by the road? By the boat. Walking by the boat. Yes. Yes. Uh, yeah, you have a number of places in the Gospels where Jesus just says, Ego me," which is, I am. Right. And those are, those are allusions okay. to God referring to himself as I am when he right. speaks to Moses. Okay. Yeah, that's, that's there and it's in several places. So, uh, excuse me, I think this gentleman, did you have a question? I, I did. Um, Raymond Brown, a Catholic writer, theologian, wrote yes. a book about census plenior, the deeper, fuller meaning of Scripture. Yes. Part of that idea being that the original writers of the Old Testament 
didn't really understand what they were writing or certainly didn't know the full meaning of what they were writing. Yes. I wonder if you could briefly tell us your thoughts on that. Yeah, no, that's a great question. Raymond Brown, great New Testament scholar, Catholic. Um, there's a in, in broader uh, church history, there's this idea of census plenier, which is the fuller meaning. And so this is the concept that you have an initial meaning in the original text, but there is a fuller meaning that comes to light as time goes on. And I think, I think that uh, that's a, a very valid kind of concept. I actually um, prefer what, it, what some people are, would call census pregnans, which is uh, that there is an original context that is pregnant with meaning, and that meaning actually gets filled out later on. So, for instance, you have these Old Testament texts, like we've talked about, some of the Psalms, Messianic Psalms, could not have been fulfilled in the time that they were written. David could not have been the king of the whole earth in the time that it was written. You have passages like Jeremiah 31, 31-34 that speak of the inadequacy of the system they're talking about. That the Old Covenant, for instance, uh, was going to be passing off the scenes because there was something new that was coming. So there's an anticipation of something greater. That, that sense and meaning gets filled out. It's not divorced from the original context, but it's like a frame in the original context. I think the original history and words and situation are important in the original Old Testament context, but it's like that frame gets blown out in ways that I, I think the original author often would not have known what was coming. It's, it's in line with and, and consonant with the original dynamic that was going on, but it's expanded and fulfilled in a way that's way beyond what people would have, have clearly understood or known at that time. Because the, the idea is ultimately God is the one who's, who's bringing all this about and stitching all this together. Okay. Yes, ma'am. Well, I think it's, I'm following up because in the Isaiah passage that you said was a quote, I'm interested when you said so it would have been the Greek Old Testament. When that, when it said for God, the clear thing, is that El Shaddai, is it Yahweh? Is there a particular uh, description of God of why he would have used Isaiah 40 to tie in the yeah. I mean, I'm just asking for it. No, no, that's a, that's a great question. You do have the dynamic where the Greek Old Testament is a translation of the Hebrew. Okay. okay. And what happened historically is you have Alexander the Great, yes. who really thought of himself as great. Did you know he wanted, a, he wanted a mountain carved into a bust of himself? I mean, this guy had <laughs> megalomania kind of uh, problems. But, but he, he was passionate about Greek culture and language. And so as he marched his armies across the Mediterranean world, he, he transformed culture by establishing Greek language being the common language of, of the world at that time. Uh, so by the time you get down to the New Testament, Jesus at home probably spoke Aramaic, which is a sister language to Hebrew. Um, but people generally in the Mediterranean world also had to be conversant in Greek. There's a debate about how much would Jesus have been able to speak Greek. But... You know, Palestine was um, a context which was both Greek and Hebrew. I mean, it was profoundly Hellenized in many ways. 
So, so you have a, a Greek translation of the Old Testament text, right? Yeah. And there are times, just like any translation, where we, we kind of study and grapple with, okay, how is the Greek Old Testament relating, how's it doing in rendering the, Old, the Hebrew Old Testament? But what is consistent, and what gets at your question, is um, when you bring over concepts of the Lord, so, so the name of God uh, in more of an orthodox form of Judaism, you don't pronounce the name of God. So you would say Adonai in place of that, you know, the Lord. And throughout this, the Old Testament text, you've got references to the Lord. Now, Lord is used in other ways, you know, as a, as a respectful address to someone. But often it's very clear from the context that it is the Lord God who is in mind. What's interesting when you come to the New Testament is there are places where the Lord is spoken of in the Old Testament where the New Testament writers are interpreting is that being specifically a reference to Jesus or it being a reference to the Holy Spirit. So, for instance, toward the end of of 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul is unpacking uh, Exodus uh, Exodus 34, where Moses went up on the mountain and came down and his face was shining and all this kind of thing. And Paul says, Now the Lord... In this passage, he's talking about in Exodus 34, the Lord that Moses met with on the mountain. Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. So what you see is, you see places where the New Testament authors interpret Lord passages of the Old Testament as God the Father, Lord passages as God the Son, and Lord passages as the Holy Spirit. You have an implicit Trinitarianism built into the way these Old Testament, Old Testament texts are used. In the New Testament, for instance, with the book of Hebrews, you have quotations that are presented as falling from the lips of God the Father, speaking to the Son, for instance. You have Old Testament quotations that are falling from the lips of God the Spirit, and you have Old Testament quotations falling from the lips of the Son. So you have an implicit Trinitarianism built in there, and they're interpreting it based on what is going on in that Old Testament context. Does that help a little bit, or... Okay, thank you. Yes? What do you think at the uh, end of verse 5, or middle of verse 5, it says, a name better than sons and daughters. I will give each of them an everlasting name that will never be cut off. I I guess I thought kind of the end result was we become sons and daughters. Yeah. But But what he's saying there is to the eunuch who can't have sons and daughters. You know, the great longing in the ancient world was to have children. And so he's saying to the eunuch... I'm going to give you something even better than, than, than children. Okay. And that is a, a relationship with myself. Okay. Great questions. Yes. Um, so there's times when it's very illuminating, right, to have the Old Testament and see that illusion or something. But I'm curious if there are, are principles that help kind of find the extent to which you prescribe or interpret the New Testament might be able to, like you see it getting out of hand. You, know, yep. you quote David and you're like, oh, we know David did this other thing. Clearly, this is what yep. readers would have thought of this when they said that. So yeah, yeah. No, that's a great question. So how how much can, kind of the question, how much can we do this, you know, in finding these different things in the, in the Old Testament text? Um, I, think, I think the basic answer is that we begin with what I would call a historical grammatical approach to the text where history matters, words matter, context matters. I think the New Testament authors in using the Old Testament actually model that well. There's debate about this in New Testament studies of how, how well they do with that. you know. But I think that, that history 
really matters. Grammatical context really matters. Um, and we could go into specific examples of that in the book of Hebrews itself, for instance. But uh, I think it really matters. So the beginning place is to track with the New Testament authors in the way that they're dealing with the Old Testament text. And I would say that there's so much there <laughs> that we could spend the rest of our lives just mining that and tracking with that. Um, that if we, if we pay attention to what they're doing with the message and trying to get our heads around the message, we, we really don't have to go and try to do a lot of fanciful exegesis ourselves that nobody else has ever seen. You know, it's probably a little dangerous if we're coming up and discovering things that nobody else has ever come up with. It, it may be an indication that we're just kind of, you know, doing something that's a, a little too creative at that point. <laughs> um, so what I would say is, I would, my, my hope would be that we would start by being saturated in the text of Scripture itself. And, and are there connections that we might be able to make as we read deeply in Isaiah and deeply in the New Testament? Sure, there may be some other connections that we would make. But I think we'll find that a lot of those fundamental connections are already there made for us as this has kind of been unpacked in the New Testament. I know it's not a completely satisfactory answer, but, but it's, maybe it's a beginning place. So we, we just need to be more saturated in the text, period. And then, um, you know, that, that's the beginning place, I think. It's... I'm wondering if you uh, have seen much of this practice of illusory echoes intra-testamentally. So, for instance, in yes. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul seems to be sort of working on Jesus yes. in Matthew 18. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the passage that you showed us from Job also calls to mind uh, Moses being shown God or the yes. hind parts of God, yes. having to turn away. Yeah, I mean, there, there's a lot of literature on uh, Old Testament allusions to earlier places in the Old Testament. And you also have this, for instance, one of my colleagues, Miriam Kavalishan, who I hope you have a chance to take her for a class at some point. She's a scholar on James. Um, and so there are echoes of Jesus' teaching in the book of James. Uh, so you do have, within the New Testament itself, you have echoes of earlier um, passages. Not, not as much as you have of the Old Testament. What you get is how profoundly these folks were oriented to the Scriptures themselves. How saturated they were. Because remember, this is the other thing to, that's amazing about all this. Remember, they didn't have what you have as a Bible. And they didn't have indices. They certainly didn't have what we have in terms of searching abilities and computer programs. They're working from individual scrolls that have uh, no chapter and verse references, that have no spaces between the words. Now stop and think about this. So someone like the author of Hebrews has 35 overt, exact quotations from different places in the Scripture, and yet he's dealing with manuscripts that not only have no chapter and verses, they have no spaces between the words and no headings. It's just every page is just a, just a flow of, of letters. So you've got to know the Scripture to be able to, to access and track uh, what you're doing with all of this. And I think that's a pretty, pretty amazing kind of thing to think about. Yes? Um, in, in the class in the morning, first thing you talked a bit about the canon of scripture yeah. and how that was established. Yeah. I'm curious if you could comment more on 
how cross-referencing, if it did, had anything to do with determining you know, which books made up the New Testament and which ones were determined to kind of be outside of the canon. Yeah. I don't think cross-referencing was a real big... You're talking about the New Testament canon especially, or... Well, and yet, particularly any kind of references to the Old Testament. I mean, I don't yeah. know enough about non-canonic texts to know yeah. how many references are well, there. Well, you're actually picking up on something that, that is important because a lot of times the Gnostic Gospels and other things like that, they're not really doing the same kinds of things that the New Testament literature is doing, in, including this kind of saturated reference to the Old Testament text. Uh, they're doing something very differently. So that would kind of come under the heading of what I talked about, that if a, if a, if a, a document was not apostolic in the sense of the rich teaching that, that they knew from what they called the living voice, you know, this, this testimony that was passed down from the apostles to those first uh, disciples of the apostles who were the leaders in the early 2nd century of the church, um, they, they recognized that what we think of as the New Testament documents were uh, richly saturated with what they recognized as sound Christian teaching and that the Gnostic Gospels, for instance, were so profoundly different from that. They really weren't oriented. In fact, some of the heresies that came about in the church rejected the Old Testament like with Marcionism and others. others. So that's, that's an interesting idea. I don't know. I, I'm sure people who are canonical scholars have studied that but I, I'm not familiar with, with that literature, but I think that would be a very interesting thing to pursue, to think about. What is, what is the role of, of Scripture in terms of the affirmation of text as valid or not? I know that that's a discussion in the, in the Church Fathers where they talk about the use of these, or, or abuse of the Scriptures, but uh, that's a very interesting thought and topic. Okay, uh, I think we're probably past our time. We'll take one more question and then we'll, we'll wrap it up here. So, yes. Um, it seems like that in a number of cases where there are quotations, the author picks up the quotation but changes the wording a little bit or maybe just doesn't yes. get it quite right. And yet, when you read about you know, how Hebrew scholars were so careful and scribes were careful to copy yes. every single word precisely, I wonder why that they would not go back to the text and make sure they got it right. Yeah. Well, there are about seven different things that can happen with the transmission of a text. Um, and, but let me, let me kind of give a simple answer to that. What happens at times is the author could be dealing with actually another form. There wasn't like a Septuagint text that was the standard official Greek text of the Old Testament for everybody. Um, in fact, we, in scholarship, we talk about in terms of the Old Greek text because what you have is individual translations of these different Old Testament books. Okay, so it could be that an author is using a little bit different form of the Septuagint text than we would have, like a different word was used in that text. That's one possibility. So there's a lot but, of varieties of the Septuagint? Uh, yes, I mean, there were variants because of the way that textual transmission happened. So we have different forms. That can be one explanation. But another explanation can be, like, and I think this happens at times in Hebrews, for instance, the author at times will stylistically adjust his quotation a little bit to make it sing. And, and, and it's just like if I'm preaching and uh, I, you know, if I really get going in my preaching and I say that uh, if you act that way, you're just a clang symbol and so and so. You know. So you pick up on, I might even quote a text 
but in quoting the text, I may change just a little bit of it to make it rhyme or sing with something I've, I've said just before it. Does that make sense? And I think Hebrews, actually, from a rhetorical style standpoint, at times will adjust the wording just a little bit to bring a balance to the lines of the quote that he's giving or something like that. It's no disrespect for, for Scripture, just like it's no disrespect if I quote something and paraphrase just a little bit in my quotation because I'm wanting to drive home a point. I'm actually kind of inside my quotation interpreting something a little bit or emphasizing something. Uh, and I think that actually happens at times in the text as, as well. So, now let me tell you something. All of you are very regenty kind of people. <laughs> With these great questions and your interest in, in scripture and theology. So come see us at Regent, okay? Do that, please. But thank you very much for being here tonight. Thank you for your attention.